0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Mike Adelic. I'm Mike Brancatelli. I'm your host. Welcome to the show. And this is going to be part two of the Jungle Talks series with my good friend, Adam. Uh, Adam is a fascinating guy, a uh, really intelligent, uh, funny human being. Love spending time with him, love going deep with him, and love talking about all sorts of things. As you'll see in this show, we go... To a lot of different places, cover a lot of ground, and uh, I think I'm, I'm pretty convinced that if uh, Adam and I got into a room together and uh, <laughs> and just started talking for hours on end, uh, only, only breaking for ayahuasca ceremonies, that we could probably solve all the world's problems uh, at the end of the day, so <laughs> <laughs> probably not, but uh, there's optimism here, I think, in this conversation, and uh, I really hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. Adam was uh, born in Mexico City, raised mostly in Israel. He's uh, traveled a bunch, and he is a psychologist, cognitive scientist, medical anthropologist. Um, he has uh, he studied traditional medicine in Mexico, in India, in Peru, uh, and uh, he's adopted a, a dialectical approach that integrates and unites evidence-based science uh, and traditional worldviews. Uh, he's worked extensively in Western uh, psychiatric institutions, and he has spent a lot of time learning from a variety of different uh, indigenous and traditional healers all around the world, um, basically trying to understand uh, the diverse uh, array of, of healing modalities um, and approaches to, to mental illness and, and mental health. Um, and trying to find that balance between um, Western uh, number evidence based uh, research and uh, traditional practices, uh, but he is a also uh, an active member of the uh, Medical Anthropology Research Center, uh, Mark, <laughs> and uh, the inter interdisciplinary psychedelic studies IPS group. Yeah, and uh, like I said, he's uh, one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, just a terrific human being, great person, uh, hilarious, really funny, really smart. Um, and I always find out new things, learn new things talking to him. It's it's always a good good mind jam uh, with Adam. You know, like a, a bunch of uh, musicians getting in a room and jamming. It's like a, a mental jam session uh, when I when I sit down and talk with him. Um, but uh, yeah, Adam, I think most recently was uh, working at the Boom Festival. Uh, he was um, uh, facilitating transformational processes uh, with the, the psychedelic support groups that do harm reduction. Um, and I think it's called uh, Cosmicare uh, in, in Portugal. He's also been a part of the Zendo Project in the United States who you might remember from, I think, episode 13 or 18, one of those episodes. I had Sarah Gale on the show, who is the the head of the Zendo Project. Uh, Adam is is an advocate for cognitive liberty, and, and we love that around here. That is one of the main focal points of this show. Neurodiversity and the integration of non-ordinary states of being into our culturally constructed definitions of normalcy and sanity with a growing interest in ecological, environmental dimensions of mental health and the importance of reciprocity. Adam uh, currently is in Peru in the Amazon jungle. Uh, I think he is probably at this point in time right now going through a plant diet. Um, And uh, he is the research uh, and communications coordinator uh, for the Temple of the Way of Light conducting uh, ethnographic fieldwork. Uh, for a few different collaborative research projects, and we 'll talk about some of those uh, on the show while sharing all the magic that 's happening uh, behind the scenes at the temple and the wider community. Adam is a fantastic human being and uh, doing a lot of really good work and um, I hope you guys really uh, enjoy this conversation. I, I think that uh, it's a it 's a real good one, so once again, yeah, this is part two and um what else can I say about adam uh, i mean he's just a he's a great friend, really compassionate sharing uh kind individual, and uh just uh really hilarious i I don't know if we really got into so much of the of the humor on this show but uh which which tends to happen actually on this psychedelic project you know i i all the humor that that takes place seems to happen outside of the podcast i guess because when I start recording, I get so interested in this uh you know, just going deep, just diving deep into, into all these really fascinating subjects that we explore on this show. But anyway, I think it's going to be a fun one and an interesting one. So uh, sit back, relax, enjoy. And uh, thanks for listening.
1: Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility
0: that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Voice of perception. Information
1: is power, but we have to seize seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. (laughs) The
0: Are there ayahuasca centers that are just like tripping centers?
1: I mean, I am. I imagine like different places have different orientations, or at least they have like uh, less of a strict approach. But what kind of people they attract? You know, like when you emphasize healing, um, then you get like a very particular uh, group of people that are interested, whether in like healing or personal growth I mean, it's not really always a distinction between, between these two things a lot of healing comes from personal growth yeah
0: yeah do, do you
1: think that healing can come from just tripping I mean I, I generally uh, don't like this distinction that people do sometimes between recreational purposes and healing purposes or medical purposes or tripping and I mean it's artificial you know in a very strong sense because uh, I mean I know for myself for example like one of my some of my most valuable, important experiences that I ever had were actually, like, you know, like, tripping on asses in a festival, like, dancing my ass off for 12 hours in a, you know, in a, in a dance floor. And I don't think you can, like, this, nobody can decide, oh, well, that's just, like, recreational or, like, not appropriate use of psychedelics, and this is, you know, a different use of psychedelics. Uh, they're different experiences, and all of them have, like, h- huge value, you know? I think, like, we also, like, tend to live in cultures that um undervalue fun you know like just having fun is something that is considered to be like you know maybe a waste of time or not something that is worthy of further exploration while anything that is kind of like rooted in work you know like we're here to do work we're here here to work on myself i'm here to you know but like just having fun like having like radically insane sheer amounts of fun you know there's something incredibly healing about that in itself yeah. To, you know
0: do you, do you think that's something that's globally uh, infused in cultures, or do you think that that's more of sort of a puritanical Western thing?
1: I think, I mean, it comes from a Protestant work ethic, I think. Uh, I mean, I haven't, like, explored all cultures. I can't really answer that. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, obviously, when you see, for example, here, even here at the temple, you like like like, the healers have, like, this innate capacity to laugh constantly you know they're always laughing they're always making fun of things they're always joking about things uh, even though they're in mirrors in like very you know like heavy sometimes difficult work they are always like humorous about it
0: yeah 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 i mean yeah that va- the value of fun I-, I think that as human beings isn't that sort of what we all want you know to a certain extent is like pleasure fun happiness joy and the so-called Progress of civilization should be geared towards increasing that.
1: Yeah, maximizing enjoyment and pleasure. I mean, it's kind of like a very Epicurean approach, uh, and I think like it's valid, but also has a shadow side. You know, like it can very easily turn into a sort of unsustainable hedonism that maybe a little bit over the top. And you can find it sometimes, for example, in kind of like festival culture, like places like Burning Man or. Like that, where people are really there to explore, you know, like radical fun and enjoyment and so on, but oftentimes can just like become a little bit too much in a way that is unsustainable, not only for the the person himself or herself, but actually for you know the environment and the culture in which it is embedded.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a balance, right? Like, Mm -hmm. once you devolve into that meaningless, baseless, hedonic pleasure, uh, there's something sort of bad about that, then, right? Like, it's sort of it, it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would, like, label it as bad, you know, I I just try not to make value judgments, but, but yeah, definitely out of balance, for sure.
0: I think Burning Man is going on right now. Yeah. And, yeah, and I know a lot of people have expressed this kind of concern that it's sort of moved away from its original intentions. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that?
1: i mean i've been I've been at burning Man a few times, and I have to say like I really enjoyed every minute of it like it has been, like a lot of fun and it was like one of the most um rich um you know stimulating environments that I can think of uh but yeah at the same time i mostly like more recently like the last couple of times that I was there when I was a little bit older and a little bit more aware of like context uh, I also had like a very distinct feeling that is in some ways also obscene and there's something obscene about this thing existing you know in the midst of the global climate you know global right. warming of right. world poverty i mean kind of like a tricky situation you know
0: it, it is right because on one hand you can think well if all these people are, who are here mm. who are obviously open aware connected in some kind of way to some sort of meaning or spirituality or purpose yeah. in, in that way, if we could use that energy and put it towards fixing some problem that mm-hmm. exists, some gaping hole in society, Yeah, but, but, but then I don't know, like then it leaves out, like, don't we need? that space to just have radical fun too. yeah absolutely and this, so was, this
1: exactly this is why I'm not so polarized about these things like I you know like I'm happy that these things exist for sure like I would like to go back um, you know particularly I think Burning Man is very special in that sense kind of like a confluence between like you know like Silicon Valley technology and psychedelic drugs and like cutting edge of arts you know like music and installations and it's really like an incredibly fertile ground where people cross-pollinate amongst all of these different Um, you know feels and like amazing things emerge from it but I mean one time that the last time that I was there I I was kind of like coming up with this metaphor that I felt appropriate at the time I don't know if I would use it nowadays but what it felt to me was like this massive build up of libidinal energies you know like people tripping and dancing and socializing and exchanging ideas and um, but so this massive buildup of living energy, like the tension, like sexual tension, just growing and growing and growing. But at the, moment, at the point of climax, it's just like a one huge giant ejaculation into thin <laughs> air, you know, that just evaporates and doesn't really fertilize much. Yeah. You know? yeah. Like everything just burns, you know, it's right. more like a hedonistic, like escape in a sense, rather than an actual real revolutionary radical opportunity which is you know what where i would like to see these things going for sure
0: yeah yeah it's um it 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 all it, it leads me to think about like i almost wonder what the world would look like if we had instead of having this these sort of like sanctioned play pens for uh, allowable enjoyment like a burning man or mm-hmm. f- these so- sorts of festivals it's like okay you can have your two weeks here you can have but what if it was fully integrated into the into the society absolutely
1: and i think this is the main value of this of these environments and there's there's a a quote by uh, uruguayan writer eduardo galliano and he talks a lot about utopias And he says, "What's a a utopia for, right? I mean, a a utopia is unreachable. You know, that's the essence of a utopia. It's something that you never really achieve. Uh, But he says, like, an utopia is just useful for us in order to keep us walking. You know, it's like the horizon. Like, you never. I mean, you keep walking towards the horizon. You never reach it, but it keeps you walking. Like, it keeps you on the path. It keeps you striving to achieve that utopia." So what he's saying is exactly, I feel, you know, what I feel, you know, like these places are kind of like models that should be or could be in a sense kind of like replicated and and just incorporated into daily life. You know, like we should have like these opportunities for radical exploration of sexuality, of consciousness, of, you know, psychedelia, art, you know, uh, but much better integrated into actual sustainable societies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean... This is great because you get to come down here to the jungle, drink ayahuasca, uh, get in touch with the Shipibo tradition and Mm. their culture and way of life. And, and it's a radical shift from how it is back home, wherever you're from, most people from, you know, places in the world where they live in cities and they have Mm -hmm. maybe desk jobs and these sorts of things. And I think one of the, one of the challenges for a lot of people is going back to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's almost like we live in in this place where we can experience these things that I think gives really fulfills a, a human soul this mm-hmm. connection community uh exploration of consciousness. Yeah. Have you come to any conclusions of of how to really kind of sustain that back in in the world? I I guess this is an integration centered question
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean this guy kind of like the, the million dollar question <laughs> you know like i mean yeah I mean, there's so many so many people nowadays they're having these experiences you know they're having this radical transformations in a sense but then kind of like how to apply that into real life you know when we go back home that becomes tricky yeah. you know like we just like i think like for, for the most part uh western or westernized cultures don't have appropriate structures where things like this can be actually implemented. And it's like a radical reorganization of society and like a radical organization of our institutions that is needed first to really be able to to shift these things. And I think this is like the goal that we must set for each and one of us who is actually doing this work, you know, who is going through the arduous, perilous journey of self-transformation and like really... You know, having the courage to look like very deep inside and say, "Well, these is the things about myself that I really want to let go of or change or transform um but then you know like it's like I think like something that we do like to emphasize at the temple sometimes is like the temple is not just like a first aid place where people just come to get patched up, you know after they've been wounded by Depression or anxiety or trauma, but actually what we ha- what we aspire what we would like to see what we hope to achieve is that people are inspired to really become agents of change they can go to their, to their to their place where they came from you know and actually like inspire. I think first it starts within like our most immediate circles you know like we speak to our families, we speak to our friends. We strengthen our social bonds. You know, we kind of like pay attention to how is it that I relate to my parents, how is it that I relate to my friends. You know, like all of these small immediate things that start to reverberate outwards. You know, like you touch one person, that person touches another person, and understand. You know, like like it becomes exponential. Like the change begins from within and starts expanding out. You know, within the closer circles. And I think this is kind of like the basic tenant of this kind of work you know like it's much easier to bring that change from the bottom up than from the top down you know like yeah i mean we do need radical revolutions in the way that we live life you know in mass scale but at the same time i think like it's much more important that people start doing those revolutions in our own homes you know in our own bodies and our own minds and so on and do you think that we're on
0: the verge of of something like that right now? I mean, do you think with, I don't know if I'm biased to to my sort of climate of being involved in the psychedelic field and mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff, but um, it seems like to me that, that people are opening up more. I mean, people are, are coming down here more. People are exploring a little bit more. Mm-hmm. People have access to information more, what they choose to do with that you know is up to them whether they want to watch, you know, cats getting kicked in the nuts or <laughs> you know or if they want to actually try and learn or grow yeah. is up to the individual but uh but do you see that as like uh, as a sort of revolution that's happening right now uh, with with people uh, in this sort of way because i think with in school we yeah. learn about revolutions of the past yeah. and there are always these like massive moments of bloodshed and radical change that are happening right and sometimes the the seeds of them are planted and then they make their way until that final breaking point right like the fall of communism and Soviet Russia and these sorts of things it just it just happened like overnight people were like shocked yeah but there has been something building up through that Um, other revolutions are violent but is it is it possible to have a re, a peaceful revolution
1: yeah i mean i think it's it's again it's one of these utopias you know that galiano speaks about i think it's a, it's an it's an amazing thing to strive for um, i think historically there has been like a divorce between social action or political action and and spirituality you know or personal growth um that I think uh, maybe slowly that gap is starting to be bridged. like a lot more people are starting to realize that in order to actually be socially effective or politically effective uh, or to be effective, you know, when acting out into the world, uh, there are pre-requirements that mean first we need to work through our own stuff inside so we're not projecting outwards, you know, what is internal. That we're not just like replicating in society uh, our own internal conflicts or our own traumas. Uh, So I think, like, as more and more social activists or political activists, like, uh, understand more deeply this idea of projection and actually have the, you know, the courage and the insight to first do their own homework, you know, uh, I think these two things will become one, you know, like, there won't be such a divide between actual action in the world and, like, personal work. And that's where I hope that these things will uh, gain much more momentum and force. You know, like the revolutions will not be only uh, this constant dance of who is in power and who isn't in power, and then the person who isn't in power wants to get in power. But actually, like revolutionaries uh, will have, like, a uh, you know, like just nobler, like, like more noble, uh, intense, than just power for the sake of power or money for the sake of money.
0: Yeah. Um, what, what, what is your uh, opinion about... Um, you know, this sort of obviously we have to work with ourselves first, right? And I think that's what a lot, why a lot of people come down here and, and choose to drink ayahuasca is this knowing that they need to heal something within themselves or, or work through something. Do you, and I think that I agree with you. I think that we have to then take that into the world and be these like ambassadors for change and then whatever small way we mm-hmm. can. I think I sent some people out there with this. Everything is perfect the way it is, Mm -hmm. and you know, just the continual work on myself. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to sit in an ashram for ten years, or I'm just going to live in the jungle and and drink ayahuasca forever. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I'm really happy that you brought this up actually, because this is one of my, you know, not maybe not a concern, but one of the things that I do think about a lot. You know, like this is the other side of the coin of what I was just talking about about. Um, and yeah I mean I think a lot of people kind of get lost you know we get lost many times into this narrative you know this story of you know like personal transformation and personal growth and the only place where we can actually enact change is within ourselves and I think it is true to some extent uh, but it's not the whole story Um, and I think a lot of these ideas come from you know kind of like a culture of you know some people would say like new age culture like you know neo-spiritual beliefs they're kind of like a mishmash of all sorts of different insights or pieces of wisdom from all sorts of different traditions you know from eastern sages and from you know different shamanic traditions and so on and so forth uh but the thing with like the this particular western flavor flavor of you know neo-spiritualities or New Age spiritualities is they're still very much embedded within you know, this neoliberal climate. They're still very much embedded in this kind of like liberal, um, you know, each person for himself and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, when these things become divided, I mean, when they become divorced from many true, real uh, political, awareness, when they become depoliticized, you know, we lose sight of the social context or the cultural context in which we occur then it just becomes like very self-indulgent you know like people like like for many of us it would happen you know at some point like we just focus way too much in our own personal process our own personal dramas our own personal traumas you know but there comes a point where there has to be a realization you know that i and this is something that i try to emphasize for example when people come here to the temple like Health or well being are never an individual process. I can never be fully healthy independently of the rest. you know like health in a sense in a very true sense is always in relation with you know for me to be fully healthy, uh, everybody else needs to be fully healthy you know there there are ways in which that is very palpable you know like if we don't live in healthy cultures if we 're constantly absorbing all of the you know, thrash that is being sent out to us daily by, you know, media. And I mean, you you know, you live in New York City, you know, you can't walk in the street for five minutes without just being constantly bombed by all of this, you know, advertising and like toxic messages are sent to you, basically telling you like the whole day you're not adequate, you're not good enough, you need to buy this to be happy, you need to do that to be happy. You know, so how our culture functions uh, has a huge impact in how we feel. You know, like a lot of um, eating disorders, you know, anxiety, like all of these things are very rooted in the way that we live our lives, you know, in mass scale. Um, And, you know, there are other factors like environmental factors, for example. People tend to ignore the impact that environmental environmental health has in our individual health, you know. Um, mostly because it's not always very immediate for us in kind of industrialized, developed countries. But, I mean, here in the Amazon, it becomes extremely evident. You know, like, in the last five years, the five main rivers that feed the Amazon River have been declared by the Peruvian government national environmental emergencies. You know, these rivers sustain thousands of villages among the riverbanks there's a lot of life that depends on the health of these rivers you know but when these rivers become polluted because of oil extraction you know like people become sick people die you know these communities die off they cannot uh, sustain themselves from you know traditional practices such as fishing or so on and so forth so the health of the river has an immediate impact in the life of people who live here you know these are things that we don't immediately feel in western countries as much um So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, like, in order for any individual to be truly healthy, it has to take into account a vision of health that is not only me. It's not only me working on my stuff, but actually, hey, you know, yeah, I mean, I live in community. How is my community doing? Do I have strong social bonds? Do I have support from people that I care about? Am I maintaining and nurturing, you know, these relationships with the people that are my support and that I am their support, you know? Um, And expanding out into society as a whole, culture as a whole, the environment where we live as a whole. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's so important. I mean, it's, it's beyond important. I think it's, it's Mm -hmm. really everything. I mean, we really need each other and, and to develop a a balance and and a harmony with the environments in which we live in. And I think in the Western world, we look at nature, we look at anything that's outside of the human being as being sort of this ornamental material ceramic, you know, as Alan Watts would say, like the ceramic model of life, like the 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 trees are decorations exactly they're not alive and you see that manifested with like places like the suburbs you know literally is a microcosm for the human psyche the 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 collective psyche of the area everything is sectioned off squared off Mm -hmm. trimmed clipped Mm -hmm. for this presentation of Yeah.
1: Uh. I mean, I think we've gone a few steps further than that. I think, like, it's not only, like, the tree is not only, like, an aesthetic feature of our our environment. I think nowadays, like, in this climate of economic imperialism, you know, it's even worse because what we actually see. I mean, you know, many of us, I mean, not, not you and I, I guess, but... Like, you know, historically, when Westerners have come to the rainforest, I mean, you can see just like out of the of the window, you know, this this beautiful screen of greenery, you know, it's lush and it's alive and it's just like thriving and teeming with life, you know. But historically, when Westerners or foreigners have come to the Amazon, you know, what we see is not exactly that, but actually like we see these trees and we think, well, how much timber can be extracted from these trees or we see the ground and we say well how much oil can we extract from beneath this ground or we see like that you know like how much gold how much silver there's always kind of like some commodification of you know the environment um you know this is one of the most important lessons I think that many of us can learn from actually coming here to the rainforest and engaging with the native epistemologies and the native you know ontologies and the native worlds you know the ways of being in this world like some anthropologists uh, like to classify Amazonian people, like all, many other traditional peoples uh, in the world, as animistic, you know, animistic cultures, you know, from the word anima, mm-hmm. basically, which means spirit. You know, uh, one of my favorite definitions of what animism means is by, you know, this guy called uh, Graham Harvey. He's a scholar of religious studies. Uh, that done a lot of, done, he has done a lot of work studying animistic uh, cultures. And he says, for animistic people... Uh, the experience of animistic people is that the world is a community of people but only a few of those people are human people right so there's human people but there's also tree people and plant people and fish people and river people and there's like storm people and everything is sentient and communicative and intelligent and has agency and in a way you know, uh, it's part of a much broader community of sentience in which humans are just one part. And life in these cultures historically uh, has always required that people know how to maintain the harmony and the balance between all the different communities of human people and non-human people, you know, and without going too far into like ontology and, you know, how do we perceive the world as, you know, plant spirits and so on. I think even just as a metaphor for what an ecologically sound relationship with environment should be like. You know, like really regarding the environment, not as a collection of resources to be extracted for human profit, but actually as a community of people of which we have to take care just as we do of ourselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, because even here we're sitting in this uh, tambo. I mean, this is built out of wood, mm-hmm. wood from here. Yeah. Right. Some trees had to be cut down. Yeah. Some. Some trees. Yeah. Right. That's that's I think the key yeah. is to understanding this reciprocity would it be yeah taking and and giving and this balance of knowing when is enough because what what's the alternative we extract everything Mm we we rip down everything and we've built ourselves these comfy prisons Mm -hmm. because where do we go from there
1: yeah absolutely well, I mean, it's, the, 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 I guess, like, the first and most important fallacy of neoliberal capitalism. You know, like, we are living uh, as if we lived in a world with infinite resources, you know, that's always going to accumulate more value when actually we live in a world with very finite resources, you know? Yeah. Um. But, yeah, I mean, also not to idealize or romanticize indigenous people, obviously. Right. like Yeah, this is something that also, like, needs to be stated. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they do extract, you know, a lot from the rainforest, but they do it in a way that is sustainable, which is a very important difference. Yeah,
0: because we have to. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I mean, we don't have to, but it would be nice to sleep in a bed with a, a roof. Yeah. 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 We need to eat. We know? need to eat. Right, exactly. I mean, well, it reminds me of, you know, the American Indian stories uh, uh, of, um, you know, when they would kill the buffalo, mm-hmm. you know, it would be it would be this kind of sacred ritual of thank you brother buffalo for Mm -hmm. for giving your life and for sacrificing for us for you know your fur and for your meat and for your bones and they would use every part of that animal and it would be this sacred really connecting to life in its fullest Mm -hmm. essence yeah we're so detached from that today absolutely with i mean and in a sense I, i suppose that we we wound up that way because we want to be right? I mean I think when the average person hears about the devastate like I've heard people say oh have you seen that documentary on Netflix like mm-hmm. uh you know food incorporated or no. earthlings or something like that oh i can't watch that because mm-hmm. then i you know i it's i don't want to change my lifestyle you know absolutely i don't want to be Shocked into the horrors of factory farming and these sorts of things, but it's absolutely it's going on, yeah. it's happening, and you're participating in it. And yeah. then by participating in it, you're perpetuating it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the system systems, you know, they're, they're usually very good at invisibilizing a lot of the process that goes into producing, you know, whether it's food or products and so on. You know, um, I mean, I don't think that people are inherently bad, you know, they're just like most people are very ignorant about like what this process entails. I right. think that if more people have a much more complete awareness of the process of how that hamburger became a hamburger, you know, and they saw, you know, the, how cows are treated in, you know, like the meat industry, like mass meat industry, you know, they saw like the whole process of how that sentient living being became a piece of steak, then more people would be inclined to actually think how the relationship is with that particular piece of food, you know?
0: But we live in a world right now where that is sat- it's saturated, mm-hmm. you know, in, in our mainstream culture this detachment you know and mm-hmm. this invisibility yeah um so it, it seems like that it would be too almost psychologically heavy for one to accept all the burdens of being
1: oh yeah for sure right i mean <laughs> is it,
0: so then it goes back to this idea of like you know with the burning man thing and getting people together to do something of positive change it's almost like look can we just have can we just relax? Can we just enjoy some things? Yeah. You know, because it's just too much. I mean, if, if you can go down the rabbit hole. I, I sure did when I first started becoming aware of things and concerned about things. Yeah. And, and I would sort of be that guy that would post something on Facebook like, can't you see that like sports is just the opiate for the masses and mm-hmm. it's bread and circuses and we're going down like Rome and, you know, you're just participating in this. Stop, you know, cut your cable television package. Don't go to these events. Yeah. But then the response from people is like, geez, man, can, can, like, what, why, then there's a, there's a, a a need to take a look at every single thing in our lives, Mm -hmm. which give, puts so much responsibility on, on the individual where we've been in this place where we're like, look, we, we need people to, you do it for us. Yeah. Right. And in a sense, I mean, so do you, do you think that that's possible? I mean, do you think that people are really capable of, of every single individual? Or do you think that there is some sort of dependency and, and leadership that, that is needed? Or like, do you think that we can have this like anarchist dream sort of come true? Or do you think that there needs to be some, some structures, some guidance, some leaders to say, hey,
1: yeah. I mean, nobody can have the weight of the world on his own shoulders or her own shoulders. You know, this is just not sustainable. Yeah. If a person takes too much responsibility about, you know, the state of the world, I mean, this is kind of like even ridiculous. You know, right. there's like seven billion people living here. We can't. Um, and, you know, like we choose our battles. I I just spent like one month basically glued to my television watching the. FIFA World Cup you know like I'm a big soccer fan I love soccer how dare you and people are starving in <laughs> Africa man, no, and you're I mean, just
0: sitting around watching TV
1: there's a huge I mean there's a lot of <laughs> issues around it I mean you know the political situation in Russia human rights infringements I mean yeah this is a, it's a very problematic thing to say well I'm going to participate in the mass spectacle of watching you know like mass marketed football uh, but I choose my battles you know like I know I mean okay I need to take a break from my life and for one month I'm just going to do something that you know like maybe it's a distraction but it really brings me a lot of joy i enjoy watching football i follow you know the different it's fun and also for me it's kind of like an opportunity for uh social interactions you know like i choose i chose i want to like go back to tel aviv and spend you know like three weeks with my closest friends just you know like drinking beers and watching football uh, which is something that is not only about the football itself but about, <coughs> sorry <coughs> about bonding with people Which
0: is extremely important for developing community.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the rationalization. You know, well, I'm not really here for the football. I'm here for the people. You know, I'm here because it's an opportunity for me to visit a lot of my old friends and have a couple of beers with them and, you know, watch football or with my dad. You know, one week I was, you know, with my dad, just like watching football the whole week, drinking beers, talking about, you know, whatever. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we choose our battles. Um, Regarding the other part of the question, I mean, I think like in my core, I'm still. Uh, you know anarchist this is kind of like the only political philosophy that has only that has ever made sense to me i don't resonate with any sort of statist approach you know not socialism or communism or leave, no. i mean is it achievable i think you know eventually by the end of the day there's nothing unachievable about it i mean the the basic tenets of anarchic you know, philosophy, at least the ones that I resonate with is that, you know, people and communities are perfectly well suited to self govern. Like we have capacities for self organization, you know, anarchy doesn't mean like chaos or anything like it. It doesn't mean like a lack of structure per se, but rather that it's not centralized, you know, that communities have the power to decide for themselves what is good for us. It's fluid.
0: Yeah, it's fluid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because we live in this sort of almost um, dystopian ish, have you ever seen the movie Brazil? Yeah, yeah. Where Three it's just a comically bureaucratic system uh, that that uh, that requires like you know all of, all of this crap to to sort of navigate through. It just becomes so overwhelming. It's you know, but right. Like some people would say, maybe that we're we're right now we're we're in a car and we're driving <laughs> and there's a cliff ahead and what What had happened was we we all decided human civilization has has decided to or you know let's just say America because that's where I'm from, like the United States hmm. we all decided like hey let's get in this car and let's go on this trip mm-hmm. and uh we're all going to take turns driving you know you drive for two hours, you know you drive for two some the some thing you know no. someone maybe someone has a map, someone has plans we're gonna <laughs> go somewhere, but eventually what happened was one guy just decided to get in the driver's seat. Everyone else became disinterested in in driving. Instead, they're playing games in the back and they're mm-hmm. just zoning out. and They're not they're not interested. Yeah. And they're saying, "Well, we're going somewhere. Someone's driving, so it you know it might be okay." Yeah. But there's that cliff. Yeah. So I guess I guess like my my question is you know like I think of like Thomas Jefferson that that said like a democracy can only you know work with like a, a well-informed public you yeah. know to, to that sort of degree. And I'm thinking that the only way for something like that maybe to happen right now is if we have this sort of collective ceremonial experience of going through like deep shadow work that that really the the car does crash yeah. and flies off the cliff,
1: like in a collective level, on a
0: collective level. Mm-hmm. And now it's well, you know, you see it happen with any devastation that happens. There's yeah. always a change in the in in the climate of people after yeah. after these devastations that happen. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, sometimes it might take that smack in the face to sort of wake people up to say, "Holy shit!" Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't like to think that way because it's a little depressing but
1: yeah I mean the basic let's say precept of like hermetic philosophy for example says like you know as above so below as inside so outside and I think in many ways like personal processes mirror like collective processes or social processes you know so if we are talking about personal transformation uh, as like a personal crisis for example is the catalyst for an actual personal transformation I think it's true and valid also for you know like the wider levels of organizations such as a society for example um and I mean, I get what you're saying, you know, like I try to always stay optimistic in a sense, and you know like still believing that somehow we will we will be able to reverse climate change, even though the scientific consensus is pretty much that we want you know, like we're well into the sixth mass extinction in which humans are pretty much pretty high on the list you know is that human nature though what
0: is that our is that our human nature to destroy ourselves
1: um I mean I think you know, like maybe the principle of entropy you know in the whole universe constantly striving for chaos um you know like i don't know about human nature i don't think i don't think so i mean i don't think human, humans are like inherently incapable of thriving or living in harmony and balance with each other i think like the whole process of... The whole civilizatory process, like, the whole history of, you know, mankind in this planet has been kind of like this constant struggle to find harmony and balance, you know, like, we have wars and empires and just kind of, like, this very long learning process which, by the end of the day, is very simple, which is how... I mean, the goal that I hope we will achieve, you know, by the end of it is, like, to learn how to live in good relation with each other, you know? By the um, end of what? So that's a very good question. Again, like, I, I, I personally would like to think that we will still find within our cultures and societies the strength to reverse the process that is very clearly and evidently leading us towards mass catastrophe. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not attached to that idea anymore. You know, I, 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 I do believe um, that it may be extremely possible that, you know, like either some mass event is going to catalyze like a major Um, you know global revolution or you know even like mass events like extinction you know like if you think about it like I mean if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective you know there's nothing inherent in the DNA of any species maybe just cockroaches you know that say well this species is going to endure forever you know 99 point I don't know of every species that has ever inhabited, this planet is already extinct, you know? Yeah. Uh, And maybe this is just the way that consciousness evolves, you know? It reaches a certain point where it cannot really expand anymore, where, you know, like, we humans chose, you know, a very long time ago a path of... Uh, technocratic evolution. You know, like we put all of our best minds and all of our resources into developing some sort of external technology. You know, we have rockets that can fly us to space. We have like an amazing network of decentralized, you know, information sharing, whatever. Um, And maybe that's, you know, what was needed to be achieved in this point of the evolution of consciousness as a whole. And the next step requires that we make space for a new sort of intelligence to emerge and take up on that role uh so you know like even within that optimistic optimistic framework if what is needed for the continuation of life and sentience in this planet is that we humans go extinct and make room for a new species to emerge i mean that's fine you know that's kind of like just we're very attached to this particular form but there's no reason to you know there's been dinosaurs and mammoths and like all sorts of different animals be- before us and there's probably gonna be many you know after us
0: mm. yeah But again, I
1: don't don't want to get into that apocalyptic mindset. (laughs) I I do think that still we have a lot of responsibility towards actually saying, well, that's like one scenario, but at the same time that we still have a lot of agency and a lot of room to wiggle and actually make things, you know, like shift in a different way.
0: Yeah. We have a lot of choices. Yeah.
1: Responsibility. Um, I think this is one of the things that is very important to emphasize, particularly for people that have been privileged, you know, to be doing this kind of work, you know, to be experimenting with psychotropic plants, and you know, like pe- I mean, it's a privilege, you know. Like the majority of the world is basically working daily just to feed themselves and their families. Yeah. And I think with that privilege also comes big responsibility. like you know, right. Peter Parker and Spiderman. With <laughs> great
0: power comes great responsibility. Exactly. You know. Um, with great responsibility yeah. comes comes great power. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. It, it just it it had me thinking about you know we're talking about the individual and the collective and and society as a whole civilization evolution and it's almost like um you know I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell and yeah. and his model of this hero's journey mm-hmm. right and we're talking about you know our technocratic resources our best minds you know all these things developing technology to whatever with with the with the good we get the bad right mm-hmm. like with with um the rocket to the moon to explore space, we get uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, yeah. You know, wh- whatever the opposites are, right? With with computers, we get spying and mass surveillance and mm-hmm. information exchange, and that's great and everything. But there's a it's double double edged sword, right? So, yeah. so with these things, maybe maybe collectively, we are on this sort of hero's journey where we are going into these realms of the unknown. We're encountering these challenges, and we're coming up with these with with these technologies we're coming up with these things but then we're we have to come back to the place of origin with them i think maybe we have a tendency to sort of get lost in out in the journey yeah um saying that you know amazon can deliver packages with drones now Mm -hmm. it's going to make your life so much more efficient because now you can concentrate more on work mm-hmm. and you know we're kind of robotizing yeah. uh, you know ourselves Yeah. and with this power of choice that we obviously have we're, you know these forms that we want to take on as consciousness and things uh, it's almost like well we're very adaptable right mm-hmm. uh, life is very adaptable yeah, absolutely. so where do we want to adapt to I think is mm. the is the choice there, and it's not so much a question as more of just a, a thought. But yeah, what do you think about that?
1: I mean, I love technology. You know, I'm not a ludist or anything like this. I, yeah, uh, I like shiny objects just as much as any other. And, and I, yeah, I mean, it's true what you say. You know, like p- many people get lost in this distraction, you know, for shiny, beautiful objects. Um, but yeah, I mean, technology has amazing uh, qualities that can definitely help us kind of like navigate that evolution into a different sense. Uh, I think, like, from my perspective, we there's something that is imperative that we do, which is to recover a true sense of connectedness. You know, this is the first and foremost, most important thing that I think, um, you know, we need to really focus on collectively if we want to shift, you know, the global climate. I mean, there's... Um, you know, we live in structures that are just constantly bent towards keeping, like eroding more and more and more our sense of belonging, our self-connectedness, you know, like isolating and itemizing individuals more and more and more, you know, creating this uh, false climate of competitivity where the individual is, you know, basically like the individual is set up against the world. You know, it's you against the rest of the world. You're competing with everybody else for resources, for, you know, um, acknowledgement, for power, whatever. Uh, and this, in a way, has been the force that has driven modern technocratic enterprises. You know, this entrepreneurship that comes with feeling that you have to, you know, like stand out from the rest. Uh, and I think it has proven successful in many other ways and it has proven catastrophic in many other ways. You know, like nowadays, for example, we're really living in a climate where epidemics of anxiety and depression are rampant. You know, all over the Western world, like rates of depression, and anxiety are just like, you know, they're just like, so common and ubiquitous that people don't really notice them anymore as much. Um, last January, Theresa May, the Prime Minister of Britain, appointed for the first time a member of her cabinet to be the Prime Minister for Loneliness of the United Kingdom. You know, I mean, it's pretty funny when you think about it, but at the same time, it's not. You know, there's a member of the British um, you know, government that's whole, like whose sole responsibility is to confront the epidemic of loneliness that is sweeping over Britain, and this is true for all Western countries, we're living increasingly lonely, alienated lifestyles. You know, loneliness has been uh, singled out as one of the most important contributors for depression, for example. The more lonely people feel, obviously, the more de- I mean, we're social animals, you know, we need healthy relationships with each other to thrive, you know. Um, so I think the shift or the focus should be into getting us back in touch with that sense of interdependence. Saying, hey, we're not just like individuals living individually in big cities, but actually like we are part of one huge family. Like we're dependent on each other, uh, you know, for our well being, for the most basic things from our well being. Um and when that becomes more prevalent when people start to regain that sense of actually being part of this huge vast network of interdependence that is rooted on these reciprocal relationships on mutual responsibility for each other then that technology will become much more useful because it will become an agent of real progress and yeah. connectivity instead of the opposite you yeah. know it's kind of like a paradox that we live in the age of information and social media and the more that people spend time on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter the less that we connect with the people around us and the more alienated that we become you know right like these are technologies that have an amazing potential for connecting but actually are disconnecting because just like you
0: know yeah 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 um yeah totally and and i I think i used to be of this belief that you know there's a a ruling elite that that know you know how to manipulate people Mm -hmm. how to stay in power cause divisiveness isolation Mm -hmm. cause fear that which You know, which which will equal dependency upon the status quo, keep the keep the wheel spinning, keep feeding the machine, this sort of thing. Right. And I think that is true to a certain extent. But there is also it it does also fall upon people not to just look at people as like, well, they're they're just victims Mm -hmm. because there's this oppressive ruling elite. Yeah. But then it's like how to overcome that, right? I, I read this great book recently called Amusing Ourselves to Death by mm-hmm. Neil Postman mm. um, where he talks about this vision of the future uh, and he, he you know, he, he looks at Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and he comes to the conclusion that he thinks that we're living in more of a brave new world sort of mm-hmm. scenario where uh, what we want to pleasure ourselves with and what we love will be sort of the thing that cripples us, that yeah. keeps us, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I sort of think that like, I don't know. I mean, I guess we're getting into like you know tricky territory here because I know you, you we don't have the answers for this stuff. Mm. Because if we did, then that would be great. But yeah. maybe we have some ideas. Yeah. Uh, I guess like, what could what can people do, in your opinion? to uh, try and push the needle more towards uh, the way that we we want it to be?
1: I mean, I tend to be very careful when I speak about the potential of plant medicines or psychedelics, because there's a tendency to become very messianic, you know, and saying, well, psychedelics are going to revolutionize the world or change the way that we live. And I think, I mean, they have a lot of potential, yes, but we're far from actually being able to channel or harness those energies for like truly radical revolutionary purposes. Uh, But I do know from my own research, for example, that uh, ayahuasca and many other plant medicines do have that capacity to really bring us back to that first uh, very basic place where we focus our energies on rebuilding or healing or reconnecting with the people around us. You know, there's, I I sometimes even kind of like to refer to ayahuasca as a social medicine, you know a lot of the people that i interview when they come to the temple and they do their workshops and so on like a vast majority of people will oftentimes emphasize the social aspects of their experiences you know whether within the context of the workshop itself like the relationship with the group you know the importance that um that sense of mutual responsibility with each other had for their experience and i mean it makes sense you know like here at the temple, I mean, you've 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 seen the workshops here. You know, this are, is are an environment where people are working with a very strong plant medicine. You know, they're having intensely, uh, deeply emotional experiences, many times transcendental or mystical experiences in a space that is shared. You know, uh, the temple is not the kind of place where people come to become passive consumers of whatever pill or tri- treatment is being handed down to them, but actually they're here f- to be participants and co-creators of a healing space that is both. Deeply personal, private, individual, but at the same time also collective. It's shared, you know. Yeah, and that implies a degree of mutual responsibility for each other's process. Uh, and when people land here, you know, a group of strangers fairly quickly bonds into a kind of like a very tight community of like-minded people who are engaged in some in the same sort of work. You know, in two or three days, like you will see that like people are just hanging out and like just like like very, very strongly attached to each other, you know, complete strangers. Yeah, sharing deeply personal stories and traumatic events, yeah. And people, and in the interviews, when I interview people, a lot of people comment on that. They say, well, actually, like one of the most healing things that I found in my time here was my interactions with other people, you know, the group that I was with. Um, And that makes sense, you know, because a lot of us come from places where we feel lonely, where we feel highly isolated and very alienated from each other you know like we don't have support structures based on community for the most part it's something that is very very rare to find nowadays particularly in like big cities or western societies like we're increasingly craving just like true intimate connections with each other
0: yeah and i think you see that manifesting with social media and selfies Mm -hmm. and, and these sorts of things it's this deeper craving to to want connection yeah to one love. I, I, another great book I read recently was uh, one, called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. That's great. Uh, where he talks about this, yeah. you know, the, the the need for connection, community, meaning, Absolutely. purpose, uh, belief. Yeah. Right? I think belief systems, uh, you know, before you mentioned you don't really attach to this idea. I what you, you, you were talking about specifically. And I was wondering if you do attach to any ideas, if you attach to any beliefs or how you view beliefs uh
1: Belief in itself. In itself. I like uh, Robert Anton's Wilson uh, quote. I don't know. I don't remember exactly how it went, but um, I think he said, like, belief is the death of intelligence. Belief is the... Death of intelligence. Death of intelligence. Yeah. Yeah um and i do feel that in a in a in a sense uh, i mean some people would say well everybody believes in something there's everybody you know like everybody has beliefs even if they're like implicit or unconscious and i think it's true to some extent but i'm always kind of like working to really unroot and uproot those kind of like prejudices or implicit beliefs about things um you know that's kind of like a projection that i make of myself like i would like to think of myself as a person whose mind is flexible enough to really be able to incorporate every bit of information and kind of like change my I mean, maybe not beliefs, but opinions, right? Like, that's, I think, like what Robert Anton Wilson used to say. Like, I don't have beliefs, but I have very strong suspicions about Mm. things, you know? And I think that's kind of like a good characterization of how I regard ideology, you know? Like, sometimes I do have, like, very strong suspicions or opinions uh, or, you know, not really beliefs, but maybe, like, just very strong feelings about something might be true or might not be true. But again, I think that for the most part, I'm happy to engage in debate or absorb, like, opposed Uh, bits of information that can actually challenge that belief and when i do catch myself like really believing strongly in something then that's when i know that i need to like revise that particular thing right yeah Uh, yeah what about you
0: i i agree yeah i i i definitely agree i i i i'm a huge fan of robert anton wilson and um yeah it's it's really looking out at uh what we call reality or life, um, it's malleable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we we give meaning to things. We choose to put our belief, I mean, everything that we have in front of us for the most part is our interpretation of it. You know, it's a manifestation of our interpretation of it, right? So, uh, but I, I, I sort of do think that I guess some beliefs can be beneficial to people.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, for example, maybe a belief in, you know, the mother ayahuasca, the spirit of ayahuasca, or or some some belief into this, because this is another belief, yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, and I I think that 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 can be good, but I think it can be good. It's it, see, it's tricky because you don't want to detach yourself fully from from it. You don't want to be the outsider that knows that it's sort of this meaning that we're giving to it that makes it real absolutely, but yeah. the the value's there though, yeah, you know,
1: yeah, I mean, I think like i don't i don't i like you know there's so many different ontologies in the world, there's so many different worldviews, so many different so many different ways in which different cultures and different people have perceived the world to be like, you know, and what exists in the world, you know what is the world made of um i have a hard time thinking that there's one proposal that is truer than others you know proposal yeah Yeah, and this is kind of like a tricky subject within social sciences as well you know like we fall into this kind of like this postmodern cultural relativism like everything is relative nothing is objective like if everything is subjective then what are we left with you know uh what i like to suggest or what i like to think about is not so much about um you know like like truths as truths themselves but as stories you know what story are we telling which is the underlying story or the narrative that is structuring and giving meaning to the experiences that we have in the world you know uh, what is the myth that we live by what is like the you know just like the underlying narrative that Kind of like guides our understanding and perception of the outside world, you know? Yeah. Um, and this is something that, you know, this is kind of like a basic understanding of the power of story that has been harnessed, you know, across history many, many times, not necessarily for good purposes, you know? Like in Nazi Germany, like they had like a really good story to tell the people that was very, you know, effective in mobilizing, a, you know, like a massive society into one of the most horrendous acts of you know, genocide ever happened. It was the same here in the Amazon, you know, like at the end of the 19th century, the the beginning of the 20th century, uh, there was a story that was told by you know western science about indigenous people being uh closer to apes than to actual human beings you know and that kind of like gave permission in a sense to the empires of the time to enslave uh you know everybody that could find in the amazon and put them to work in rubber plantations which is basically the labor that fueled the industrial revolutions all over the western world right. like, and we still
0: do this to this day yeah you know dehumanizing people whether exactly. it's people of the middle east or you know areas where yeah. we want to go in and and Yeah. So
1: I I think like a huge, huge, huge thing would be to really revise what are the stories that we tell, you know, what are the stories that we absorb? What are the stories that have been that have been told to us, you know, by governments, by economic, you know, economic, economicians, sometimes there's such a word, you know, um, there you, I mean, this is kind of like on a more macro level, but in the micro level, it's also really interesting. I mean, this is another one of the things that I found, for example, in my research is like you, you mentioned uh, this just now, you know, like I would interview people sometimes and oftentimes, actually, like oftentimes people would say like, oh, and then, you know, this was happening. And then like grandmother ayahuasca told me this or that, you know, and then I like, usually would stop, you know, the person and say, hey, um, how did you experience ayahuasca? as a female entity, or how did you experience this to be gendered, you know? Uh, And more often than not, people kind of like will pause actually and, and think about it and say, well, actually I didn't, but this is how it was presented to me you know, by this facilitator, or by this movie that I saw, or by this blog post that I read, and I kind of like just absorb that, and that's how it manifested in my experience, you know, um, which is a very interesting thing, because, you know, like, there you see, like, the power that story has, like, the power of a particular narrative in the eventual outcome of experiences that people are having, and this happens all the time, you know, in small ways, and also in very big ways, you know, yeah. and this is to go back to the beginning of what we were talking about, you know, like... There is this underlying narrative nowadays of ayahuasca as being a medicine, you know, so people already have that expectation of ayahuasca being something that is going to heal them, you know, and that's great. This is a fantastic use for such an amazing plant substance, you know, but it's not its only use, you know, here in the Amazon, ayahuasca has been used for a thousand different things, you know, throughout hundreds of years, you know love magic and witchcraft and hunting and like social bonding like for some tribes ayahuasca has been explicitly used as an agent to make communities coalesce you know and it's not necessarily like separated from you know this narrative of healing but the power of story is very important
0: yeah um i I could see some people hearing that and saying oh no don't don't talk about that like keep it keep it focused as a medicine because mm -hmm. you know we don't want to disrupt the the power structure we don't want them to catch on to this as being this or, or whatever we don't want to tarnish it we want to make it you know i i see this in in you know a lot many psychedelic research where it's yeah. it's you know this is a healing modality this is a medicine and you know it's sort of this let's escape from that sort of leery 1960s you know yeah. tune in turn on drop out mentality yeah. um but i do very much feel that that you know, and one of the quotes in the beginning of the show in the intro music is Terence McKenna saying, you know, psychedelics are, are illegal, not because a loving government cares that you might jump out of a third story window, yeah. but because they, you know, they they shed cultural conditioning yes, and absolutely. make you realize that everything that you've ever known is is a story. He says a lie, but a story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, let's let's uh, you know you brought up uh, your your research uh, a couple times. I mean, let's let's dive into that. And uh, you know, fifty minutes in, let's finally get to what you do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, why, why don't you share? Like, I know you gave a talk here the other day, and I think we touched on some of those uh, mm-hmm. topics. Um, but why don't you talk about a little bit about what you're doing here and and what, you, what what you have been doing and and your job and what you're researching, if you don't mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I. I think like the main piece of research that is going on at the time is a collaboration between the Temple of the Way of Light, um, ICS, which is an institution, is an international center for ethnobotanical education, research, and service. And they're based out from Barcelona, and they're um, you know they're friends of mine as well. Um, and basically, it's kind of like a study that has been running for the last three years, more or less, uh, both quantitative and qualitative. Uh, and I for the last year more or less have been conducting the qualitative part of it um, and it's kind of like a really interesting thing to be doing because I get to interview people that have just like finished their workshops you know like the same day or the day after like things are still very fresh in their minds uh, and just gather their stories you know so the quantitative part which is basically the statistical aspect of it uh, is already giving us like a pretty strong indication of ayahuasca's potential as a therapeutic agent uh, we're assessing it particularly for four experiences the of psychic affliction that are very prevalent in western societies as we were talking before so depression anxiety uh, trauma and grief as well and another group which is uh, more uh, personal growth or general well-being and you know the numbers are pretty solid i mean we have an amazing sample of Hundreds of people, I think it's approaching probably like the 800 or 900 people, even maybe more, Um, you know, like just very strong data. Uh, And the qualitative study is designed basically to elucidate, you know, those numbers. What is actually happening in the experiences of people, what is actually happening for people during their time here that is actually having that effect, the therapeutic effect, the transformational effect. So kind of like fleshing out those numbers with narrative, with the real stories, with what's happening for people, you know, in real time. And that's also the explanatory power of that study. You know, like the numbers are great, statistics are great, they're perfect for, you know, bringing this awareness into the medical establishment, um, for, let's let's say, um, you know, influencing drug policies eventually. But the real explanatory power is actually like people's voices, you know, their own stories. So, you know it's very fun for me to be doing it. Um, and also like something very important, you know, like we're not discovering anything. This is something that is also, you know, important to stress out like we're not here as, you know, like these pioneers of you know, like the 19th century ethnobotanist who would, like, travel into the Amazon and kind of, like, find new plants and, you know, send them to the laboratory. I mean, we know that this works, you know. We have known this for a very long time. Not only us, but, you know, like the Shipibo healers that we work with. I mean, many of the Amazonian cultures that have worked this for hundreds of years, they have known this for many, many, many years. You know, these things work, you know. Uh, So more the way that I conceptualize this work is uh, work of translation, you know, how do we translate this wisdom, this knowledge, you know, um, that is framed within a very particular epistemology, which is a local, you know, way of knowing and being, how do we translate that into the Western scientific epistemology so that it it can actually be digested by the institutions that we want to influence? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, we need everything to be measured and squared away. Yeah, in a sense i's dotted and t's crossed
1: exactly yeah hmm. um yeah and yeah so this has been a great uh, adventure so far particularly within that study uh, again like there's many findings that uh, you know different things but one of the things that really strike me constantly um is that theme of connection you know that we were talking about before you know this sense of like people really realigning And reconsidering how it is that they behave and relate to their environment, you know, like their friends, their family, their community, the environment in general, you know, like reconsidering, recalibrating a relationship with plants, with food. Um, And I at some point conceptualized this as um, onto epistemic reenchantment. Can you say that again? Onto epistemic reenchantment. Okay. Right? Like ontology, like what is out there. Epistemology: How do we know that we know what we know, mm. right? Uh, in a sense, and then reenchantment: just the sense of you know, like recovering the sense of hey, we live in a world that is enchanted, mm. that is teeming with sentience, you know, that is full of beauty and intelligence, and that is important actually to re-situate myself within that network of sentience because I can't be forever isolated into this kind of like you know utilitarian consumerist worldview you know because that's extremely alienating you know so a lot of people do ex- express that you know like they have experiences that radically shift the way that they see themselves embedded within the environment you know um and so this is this sense of re-enchantment saying well you know like actually you know the world is a much more magical place you know mm-hmm. like my you know, like my, um, my place in this network, you know, is much more important than I previously thought. I'm just not an isolate, I'm not an atomized individual, but actually, you know, a very important uh, participatory agent, you know, this network of, of, of being. And, yeah. you know, you can see that in very uh, micro levels, again, with like a lot of people emphasize, well, when I go home, the first thing that I want to do is that I want to patch up things with my father, or I want to work things out with my ex-partner, or I want to like really, um, you know, like put more energy and love into my family relations, or I want to be a better friend for my friends, you know. Now, these are like small things that a lot of people express, you know, when they go back home, this is like the first thing that I'm going to do. Um, the experiences people have too you know people have like a lot of work doing ceremonies like working out relation stuff you know like it's always like some I mean, not always but many many times it's, a, it's the kind of work that requires that you are always in relation with you know in relation with a person in relation with you know
0: yeah but maybe an idea about yourself a yeah. story that you're believing narratives constructs yeah beliefs right yeah uh, it, it is that sort of yeah like like a Reminder, yeah, you know, of of this. Like, I, lo- I love the word you use enchantment, yeah, you know, and the re enchantment. Because, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you explain magic to like materialist, reductionist types of, of folk?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, when I mean magic, I don't necessarily mean like magic as an unexplainable metaphysical phenomena. You know, but just as that dimension of being. Of which, awe, wonder. Yeah, exactly. Like awe of wonder. Mystery. Or, yeah. Mystery is a great word. I use mystery a lot. You know, I mean, I don't necessarily uh, categorize myself as a spiritual person. There's something about that word that I don't really fully like. What is I, it? Spiritual.
0: No, what, what is it that you don't like about it?
1: Um, I mean, maybe it's just like the connotations that spirituality now has within a very particular culture in the Western world. Yeah, like this California flavor of, <laughs> you know, no Do you liver. think
0: it's been, been sort of like co-opted and, and,
1: commercialized yeah in a a sense yeah i mean there's like a whole industry that thrives on spiritual materialism you know Mm. like this spiritual consumption you know how many retreats did you go to last year how many times did you drink this medicine like how many i mean it's kind of like this just like again this is why I, i i say you know like in a very real sense like this neoliberal spirituality is very well adapted to the neoliberal climate of consumption it just like becomes translated from actual material goods to you know, retreats, services, satsang, lectures. It doesn't really matter. It's just like this pattern of consumption over and over.
0: Yeah, and I, I just had a thought because I was thinking about, um, <laughs> there's this ridiculous show on right now called Mostly for Millennials. It's this, this absurdist satire right. type show. It's really far out there. But they did this sketch that, that mocked um, this Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe a year or two ago <clears throat> where there's these protests that were happening. I guess it was around the time where there were a lot of protests, you know, and she goes up to like a police officer and hands him like a Pepsi and he like cracks it open and it's mm-hmm. like, wow, like, I'm, <laughs> you know, it's so absurd, but it just reminded me of this, of this like hijacking or co-opting or commercializing the, the real thing, the mm-hmm. real juice of life the real mystery yeah and then prod and putting it into a product and and sort of you know um uh, yeah i mean commercializing it yeah. to be distributed and consumed by everybody it's like taking revolutionary uh um, absolutely ideas and and moments and transformative experiences yeah. and and packaging them yeah. for sale uh
1: yeah, this is one of the main strengths of modern capitalism. Yeah. You know, it has an uncanny ability to just do that—to subvert any revolutionary impulse, right? idea. subvert it, yeah, and just turn it into its own profit. Right. Yeah. This is why I mean, one of the main reasons why capitalism is still around and thriving is because of that. You know, it's just like anything that can be subversive or revolutionary, it's just like absorbed into the system.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, I you've used you used uh, capitalism, and I I think I. You would agree that basically, you know, the the free exchange, like exchanging things on a voluntary basis. Mm. I mean, that's that's sort of I I guess we can just not call it capitalism because capitalism is sort of tainted. Mm. But that some people would say that that is sort of the free, the the truest form of capitalism. I Mm -hmm. have something, you know, I can give it to you if you want to exchange it. And I think that's that's fine. But what we see here with this term capitalism is this sort of mega transnational crony exactly. corporate governmental oligarchy yeah right
1: yeah yeah I mean when I when I refer to capitalism or you know neoliberal policies or whatever I mean this is pretty much what I mean like this particular flavor of crony late stage capitalism yeah that is not necessarily reflective of the original idea or you know like the original philosophy of what capitalism should be like but there's a particular flavor that has taken you know in this in this era and time yeah, yeah. You know, but, you know, like back to the to the magic thing, like, so the spirituality, you know, like like I think like the relationship that I like to cult- cultivate is with a mystery, you know, a relationship with a mystery that I feel is very healthy for me, uh, not necessarily to conceptualize that as any, you know, with any form or shape or structure, but just like there's something that is way mysterious and I will probably ever comprehend, you know, and just like dwell in that, you know, like sit with <laughs> that. That's, that's, that's enough for me. Like, um, uh, yeah. I agree. So, but that's the enchantment. The enchantment is not necessarily like bringing like that sort of metaphysical magic into the world. But actually, just like 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 the enchantment is it is enough to be enchanted to actually contemplate the reality of nature. You know, like this tree in itself is magical. Like it's it's amazing. There's mystery in it. There's life force in it. You know. I think we become very desensitized to these things, and we think about magic as just like this Harry Potter kind of thing. You know, like uh, Lord of the Rings kind of like. Psh. But actually, like you know, like the like the world is amazing enough as it is. You know that we can be in awe of it every day, every second of our lives, just by contemplating it without recurring to metaphysical mysteries. You know?
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it. I do like to bask in the mystery. Yeah. And uh, last night after ceremony, just walking home, seeing the moonlight shining through the the tall palm trees and the the glimmer of making this sort of like almost kaleidoscopic glow coming mm. through and looking at that and 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 just absorbing that and feeling that mystery feeling the the wonder and the and being overwhelmed with with awe and this like you know transcendental liminal state of of, of being and and it's those it's those moments for me that that really I, I think make me want to continue on mm-hmm. to more absolutely. more to just experience keep expe- getting in touch with that getting in touch with with some kind of larger you know rubik's cube of paradoxes yeah. that each have a trap door inside of them that go down a wormhole that yeah. go into a rainbow colored you know roller coaster room of never-ending you know bliss of wonder and mystery yeah I don't absolutely. Know any better way to put it but uh yeah, and 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 I see the value in that. I, I but some people don't see the value in that. Some people want to know. Well, well, yeah. The moon is technically it's you know it's uh, I don't know a thousand feet away. I know it's <laughs> a thousand feet away, but yeah, it's there and it it revolves around the sun. It's made of this and right. I think we talked about this before about right, yeah. the extracting, seeing things as resources and, and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the main values of kind of like re-enchanting one's world, you know, like for for an individual person, but also from a collective perspective. And if you think about it, we were talking before about the meat industry, right? If you're able to see a cow, right, and connect deeply with that cow and see that cow as a sentient, intelligent, communicative being that has its own you know agenda that has its own life force that is also a cow agenda yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know like when you are able to recognize you know like uh that cow as another fractal refraction of the same beam of conscious light that is you and i you know in that cow then it becomes much more harder to participate you know in that particular industry in yeah. that particular process um you know like Again, coming back to the Amazon, for example, indigenous peoples, uh, you know, like thrived on hunting for millennia. You know, they hunt, they eat meat. They're not not vegans, you know. But hunting is something, is an activity that always has been um, kind of embedded in very strict taboos. You know, you can't just wake up one morning and go hunt whatever you want to hunt and bring back as much meat as you want, you know. Um, You know, the same kind of animistic thing. When you're going hunting, you're just not bringing meat. You're killing people you know, it's people that you're killing. You need to be very aware, you know, of how those people feel about it. You know, you ask for permission, you communicate in a sense, you say, Well how many of you can I take, you know, this evening? Where can I hunt? you know. It's kinda it's kinda like always like this mechanism that ensures that there's some reciprocity and harmony between the hunter and the hunted, you know, Now, which is something that we completely lost in the West. You know, this one, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying like, hey, we should kind of like regain an animistic perspective on things and go back to this, uh, you know, more primal way of experiencing ourselves as, you know. Um, but, you know, at the same time, there's a lot that we can learn, actually, from, from from yes, regaining some of these aspects of actually like being able to see the humanity, not only in humans, but like the humanity that is shared by non-human people as well. Yeah.
0: You 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 said uh, you know, the that same conscious beam of light, right? Mhm. And um you know, yeah, I, I I sometimes describe it as like a life force, mm-hmm. whatever it is. What is it?
1: <laughs> I mean <laughs> great. <laughs> you know, like this yeah, I don't know. I I think like if, 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 yeah, there is this concept in philosophy that I like a lot. It's called cognitive closure, right? And basically, the the, the tenant is like, you wouldn't expect a mice to do calculus, right? You wouldn't expect a dog to learn the geography of Indonesia, you know? There's nothing inherent in human beings that say our nervous system or our cognitive faculties are adapted to understand the mysteries of the universe either. You know, there is a limit to what we can understand about how things work, you know? um and that's kind of like something that i kind of keep in mind you know there isn't uh like like i don't have to be able to understand every mystery every phenomena of metaphysical nature you know like i'm content just with contemplating it sometimes and, and you know during ceremony oftentimes you know i will have like these experiences of communion where i'm just like in this space where you know like there's some sort of um just like a white presence radiating light and love and and I'm just like there you know like not thinking about it I'm just like experiencing it and in communion with this mystery in communion with this incredible life force and I think for me that's you know the closest that I ever gotten. I mean, it's kind of like ineffable. Obviously, I mm-hmm. cannot describe this with mm-hmm. words. You know, as well as it I, is, like, yeah. the experience was very different. But this is the closest that I ever gotten to like what I what I think or I want understand to be like a mystical experience. You know, where there is like this sort of strong sense of communion with the transcendental. um And for me, just like just dwelling in that space, every once in a while when I get there, is enough. You know, that I don't really need to understand logically or conceptualize what that is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I like think like the closest... I mean, obviously, I've thought about it many times, you know, it's inevitable, but... I think like consciousness is what's primary. I mean, that's in my, in my sense, you know, like consciousness is kind of like the thing that is primary to everything. And it's kind of like this evolution of consciousness and a myriad different manifestations of consciousness taking up in different physical forms and, you know, like experiencing itself through different nervous systems, kind of like finding different configurations in which this consciousness can be manifested in the third dimension, let's say, um, I don't know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, like very far out, I uh, think it's super interesting. though.
0: Oh, yeah, no, I love it. I mean, yeah. I, I, I tend
1: to agree. I think that, you know,
0: consciousness is, I, I've really, I've really been getting into more and more of everything is a paradox. Mm-hmm. I love paradoxes. Which is, which is difficult because no one wants to be, you know, you ask someone a question and you say, well, it, it is true and it isn't true. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, pff, you know, explain yeah. that. It's like we can't wrap our head around that. But yeah. I've been getting more and more comfortable, as you've you've put it, like dwelling in that realm of paradox and yeah. enjoying it for what it is. Yeah, you know, is consciousness localized or non-localized? Is is death the the end or is it the, just the new beginning? Yeah, whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, what do you think? What do you think about? What do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean, I think paradoxes are you know, like like everything's paradoxical when you think about it because we always conceptualize things in terms of a dual mind, you know, so everything that we conceptualize is going to have, like, its polar opposite. Uh, it's just like duality, you know, like paradoxes, I think, like understanding that and being able to rest within paradoxes and say, well, you know, like as far as I'm able to comprehend the world, it's always going to be uh, filtered through my nervous system and it's always going to be constructed through my very limited human mind based on my past experiences and my personal biography and the school that I went to. And there's always like a, there's so many different layers of filters, you know, through which we understand the world. And that obviously like just creates like a very uh, subjective experience, you know? Um, Right. But somebody
0: can, I mean, through these, through a collection of subjective experiences becomes this general consensus of a objective experience. Right. And then, you you were bringing up Robert Anton Wilson before and I love what, w- one of his quotes where he, you know he talks about the thinker thinks and the prover proves mm. right uh, are you familiar with that i don't think so 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 he's he's basically saying like the, for everything that we can think of somebody can prove it to right. be that way yeah. right you can think that uh that the the sun <clears throat> you know re- uh, revolves around uh the earth okay you've thought of that now there will be people out there that will uh, be inclined to agree with that thought, mm-hmm. so therefore they will arrange all of, although well, they will just prove it by yeah. arranging their their Absolutely. experiences and their data and everything that way. Now, if you thought the opposite, right? So okay, so in the the Earth revolves around the sun. You've thought that. Now, someone will go out there and and prove that. Absolutely, now they could both be proven. Yeah, in a, in a certain way. Um, yeah,
1: there is a very strong confirmation bias. Yeah, you know, for people. Like yeah. we will prove anything we want to prove You're as right. far as we believe right. it beforehand. I mean, just it works like this, you know. Yeah. Like everything can be accommodated to fit a particular narrative, mm. you know. And again, this is what you mentioned before. You know, like sometimes people get lost in this idea. Well, everything is perfect as it is, you know. Like everything is already in place, you know. Like, you know, like they, they, we're very, we're very good at rationalizing things that happen to us, even, you know, like something horrible happens to a person and then in retrospective you know after he's done some work on it and processed it, it says oh that was actually an essential part of my life because it taught me this and that and that you know or oh you know like this and I mean it's true in a sense like things happen and we learn from them and you know but it's like, again it's that rationalization you know that can be very easily kind of like the and then justified like you know to do other stuff you know like well everything is already perfect as it is, you know? So it is okay that we're exploiting oil in the Amazon because it's perfect, you know? This is what's supposed to happen. And it is okay that we are enslaving, you know, whole countries in the Far East to make us, like, nice clothes and sell them cheaper because, well, everything is perfect as it is, you know? Everything happens for a reason. It's kind of like one of the phrases that I hate the most. Everything happens for a reason, right? Yeah. That was
0: meant to happen or or something like that. Um, And there's a a layer layer of truth to it. There is a layer of truth. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: think there's a layer of truth to it, but, you know, like... We or at least like a possibility that that's true you know we're so you know small and incapable of understanding the wider context of how why things really happen you know that it may be that there's really kind of like a roadmap traced down for us and things kind of like evolving in a very natural way but at the same time you know like that kind of thinking well everything happens for a reason everything is perfect as it is can very easily devolve into this kind of like apathy or mm. lack of political action and say well actually yes maybe but maybe things can be better you know
0: right right yeah yeah, everything happens for a reason, and and I think it was uh, like uh, Arthur Schopenhauer who was saying that like it it seems like when he was like when I when when I look back at my life, it's it's like who who wrote this story? Like it, it seemed like all the things that happened, yeah. uh, it, it was it was there, and it, it sort of put all these tragedies or devastations or, or low points in in the life, or or changes in directions, forks in the road taken, you know the 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 path less walked and Absolutely. Or, or traveled. And then it's like, but at the end, looking back in hindsight, it's like, wow, it, it was, it was connected. It happened for a reason or whatever. Yeah. Um. And maybe it, 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 you said there's a level of truth to that. I think some level of truth to that is that we are, you know, from this conversation, I mean, it just seems that like we we're insanely powerful creatures yeah. that have the ability to, to justify, rationalize, conceptualize whatever we want and, and believe it. And right. And, and then we, uh, and then we can justify it, yeah. you know. Um, but uh, but I do think that uh, that there is some sort of when you say that things are working out in a particular way, I do I do think that there is some degree of when you exert your inertia into space and time, that you do sort of wind up going down a path where the likelihood of you being exposed to certain things are going to increase because you're you're
1: moving in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there's this quote, I don't remember the name of the author, but uh, she said, like, the world is not made of atoms, the world is made of stories, you know, and I think this kind of like, again, this theme of story, you know, like, like, one of the most important things for a human mind is to always seek coherence, and there's nothing that the mind that more than cognitive dissonance, you know, we need to make sense of events in a way that fits the narrative. You know, and in that sense, I think like there's there's two different things, like one of what you're saying, which is true, you know, like we do obviously invite into our lives particular experiences or we attract particular people you know because the way that we navigate you know our, our, our lives and we situate ourselves in particular environments or we you know there's many things that we do kind of like have a lot of agency towards what is gonna happen, but at the same time, I think there's a huge huge need and a very you know collective tendency to weave stories in retrospect, you mm-hmm. know you can literally like give a person, like, a random collection of events and things and relationships and whatever, and that person is going to come with a story, you know, about how all of these things led to one another and, you know, so forth and so forth. Like, the power of narrative, the power of story can never be underestimated, and our need to depend, you know, on having a coherent narrative, that's something that's also kind of, like, you know, universal. You ever watch the show, Westworld? Yeah. It's a good show.
0: Yeah. I, I think that there's a lot of... uh there's a lot of good good stuff in that show. And and I was thinking about this, this like, what you were saying before, about this myth that, that maybe we need to live by and, and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, this separation, isolation, disconnection. It's like we don't have this sort of, you know, unifying story or, or maybe several different unifying stories that we can live by. And I've been thinking about, like, I've, I've just thought, like, well, maybe one of the modern myths that we can live by today is this... this uh, uh, this theme that we say we see play out in several different science fiction movies and things like this and hmm. Westworld being one of them of, of the idea that there's robots and then the robots gain consciousness and become aware. Uh, and, and maybe that's not necessarily something that we need to take literally. I mean, although it could be a possibility, yeah. but maybe we could apply it to ourselves. We're living in this very robotic world where mm-hmm. our narratives have been programmed and, mm-hmm. And the myth that we can live by or the meaning that we can live by to extract out of these stories is that, like, we need to wake up yeah. and, and see what's going on.
1: Yeah, that's a great interpretation. Yeah. I never thought about it light well. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good, uh, that's, I mean, that would be, the, I think it's a story that's already being told, you know, like, yeah. over and over, probably since the 60s, if not before, you know, like, yeah. this need for human for humans, you know, all over to wake up.
0: You kind of fluttered a little bit when you said wake well, up.
1: Well, you, men- you mentioned in, you mentioned before like uh, <laughs> Timothy Leary, right? Yeah. And it's like drop in. What was it? Yeah, tune in, turn on, drop out. Right. Um, you know, like this, 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 this need to wake up. You know, in that sense, kind of like uh, um, is something that nowadays, at least from the psychedelic movement perspective, you, you mentioned it too. Like we're trying to get away from it. You know, like, at least in the sense that we're not like wanting i mean no, i don't include myself in it in particular but just as a collective you know kind of get to stray away from that image that was stamped on psychedelics as countercultural, uh and kind of like bring that more into the mainstream kind of like medicalize it a little bit and like for performing protocols and work within the institutionalized channels to really bring this into the forefront of mainstream medical sciences yeah um and you know like some people see that as selling out some people see that as an actual real you know valuable way of achieving that much more people will actually have access to the substances that might wake them the fuck up you know, it's, kind <laughs> like, it's kind of like a, one of the most heated debates now in this particular week it's been like a very heated debate within the psychedelic community you know um, really yeah there's like a new company called compass i mean it's not really new but they kind of got an FDA approval to run clinical trials for depression using psilocybin. It's a particular uh, molecule that they have patented. Um, okay. It's, it gets much more complex, and I'm not a particular authority in this debate, but the issue is that MAPS are supporting this organization uh, that not only has patented this molecule, but actually has kind of like make it, made it exclusive so that no other uh, research groups can research can do research within that particular um, you know, psilocybin com- uh, compound. Interesting. Um, so it's kind of like nowadays this, this, this debate of medicalization of psychedelics is kind of like on the forefront, you know, with like very ardent uh, proponents and from both sides kind of like fighting off.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's how we figure out things, right? I yeah. mean, we have to, as long as the debates can be open and cordial, I think, Yeah. Um, that's, I guess, how we'll come to a good conclusion as to what, how things should go. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that originally I had sort of come from this like lineage of like, just eat as, eat as many mushrooms as you possibly can and overthrow the government, you know? And it's (laughs) like, okay. Um, yeah, maybe because I do, I do see, i mean the the pushback from something like that mm-hmm. would be tremendous yeah and I, and I think we saw that right yeah. with with the 1960s i mean and in a sense there was no established culture uh community of wise old elders to guide the the younger uh the youth from who are exploring these new realms of consciousness and having these these amazing experiences where do you, where do you put that yeah. how do you manage that and yeah. For the power structure, they were scared shitless. So yeah. they had to just crack down on everything. Yeah. And we definitely don't want that to happen again. Exactly. So, learning from the past, yeah, taking what works, and then integrating it into the future, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, and again, like, it's not to get very messianic about these things. I mean, yes, psychedelics have, like, a amazing potential to deprogram people, you know, to kind of, like, override, you know, years of cultural indoctrination that we received throughout, you know, like, years of forest education and so on and so forth and yeah. media consumption and so on um but you know i mean they're not i mean it's kind of like a cliche already to say these things but they're not magic bullets you know right. they're, they're not like magic pills that you take once and you're enlightened or you know woke or whatever like these are <laughs> things that require woke as fuck yeah you know they require a constant work you know they require a constant awareness you know well yeah i mean i was shown this when i you know, trip balls and mushrooms, but, you know, how do I apply this actually in my daily life? You know, it's two very different things. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, psychedelics do have a lot of potential, but it's still the responsibility of people to actually know how to navigate these tools in a way that is positive and conducive to change and growth and so on. So what
0: would be, uh, what, what do you think going forward? What's your outlook? Uh, what, what would you like to see or hope for, you know, just, um, you know, in terms of like, you know where we are now, and the and the work that's being done here, and the the mm. fun that's being had here, and uh, and and you know how that that flows flows forward.
1: In regard to this particular work that we're doing here, or just in general, like where is the planet headed?
0: Yeah, I mean maybe you could do some kind of a combination of, of <laughs> both, uh, you know. But I, I guess more focused on, uh, yeah, I mean the work that we're doing here. Uh, and then how that uh, that uh, you know where you see that sort of how you see that progressing and what you see that maybe evolving towards and mm-hmm. you know I guess maybe like the greater sort of psychedelic research front at large in, in terms. Yeah.
1: I mean, my ideal scenario, and I, I mean, I come from uh, from the perspective of you know, like I mean, I my training is in psychology and medical anthropology. I worked in psychiatric institutions for a while and kind of became disenchanted with the way that our mental healthcare systems work. Um, and this is one of the main reasons why I got in this journey of actually finding better tools that can actually help people.
0: Because of what you saw in the, what we call mental health facilities, Yeah, right? I
1: mean, working in psychiatric hospitals or like yeah. midway homes. And I mean, I just like very quickly understood that the current way biological psychiatry addresses instances of human suffering is by I mean it's not even close to being humane or even helpful for the lot for the majority of people actually. Yeah. Uh, but I still have like this very strong need to find other ways in which people that are suffering intensely can be helped in a much uh, better way. Um and if not again, not to kind of cross that line of because messianic, but I do firmly very strongly believe that at least from the perspective of mental health, psychedelics are a revolutionary tool that can very very easily uh catalyze a paradigmatic shift in the way that we address human suffering um and that's kind of like my my where my eyes are set you know mm-hmm. bringing about or helping bring about uh that paradigmatic shift in you know like our institutionalized mental health care systems which is a very let's say in the global thing it's kind of like a smaller thing but it has repercussions you know like as sp- people actually manage to, you know, like, work through depression or work through anxiety or even, like, you know, later on, like, figure out ways in which, you know, psychosis can be managed better or understood, you know, as a natural manifestation of a diverse state of, you know, being in this world. I mean, there's different things. Uh, Then, you know, that inherently also will have, like, an an impact in society as a whole, you know. Um, And, you know, that's where I would, like... That's where I would like to, to go with my own particular ambitions, you know, not so far as, well, let's create like a, you know, a global revolution or overthrow governments. But actually, just like, let's start with that, you know, how do we address human suffering in a way that is much, much, much better?
0: Well, I think that's perfect. I mean, because you're you're right in our, our you know, how we treat people who we deem as being mentally ill, even the mm. word itself, mentally ill. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I think someone, I forget who said, like, anyone will go mentally ill just being in a mental hospital. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the condition, I mean, and it was, it's the conditions are, are I mean, you know, working there firsthand. Um, I had this guy on the podcast, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, who uh, we were talking about uh, a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic mm-hmm. by Robert Whitaker. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. And um, just the, 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 the the practices that were in place, I mean, just even a hundred years ago Mm -hmm. or 50 years ago. Yeah. But you know, today, I mean, it's savage and brutal. And, um, Mm -hmm. so this kind of like ties everything back in together because I think that this is a key because I think that everybody is, is, is suffering to some degree or another. Um, but the treatment doesn't seem to be working with what we've been administering so far on a real, on a whole level. Yeah, absolutely. But psychedelics have the potential for doing that.
1: Well, I mean, it's just like very basic things, you know, when people experience interconnectedness, when people experience, you know, this sense of, you know, breaking out from this atomizing, isolating state, you know, like the whole biological approach of modern psychiatry is pretty much based on an understanding of neurotransmissors and how they interact with the different, you know, um, neurotransm- uh, you know neural pathways. And mm-hmm. um, So, you know, when you tell people, well, you're actually feeling depressed because your serotonin levels are very low, you know, your serotonergic systems are kind of like out of whack and then you say, well, what do you have to do actually is you have to take this you know, SSRIs, and then you will regain, you know, the right levels of serotonin and you will feel happier, right? Um, You know, what what actually is happening is that, you are depriving that person in many ways from actually doing real changes in their life that, you know, like things are, are invisibilized by the ubiquity of biological psychiatry, you know, and the person, you know, when a person understands, well, I'm not only depressed because I don't have enough serotonin in my brain but I'm actually depressed because there are like these social, you know, factors and these cultural factors, you know, like, I mean who can be truly happy you know, if you're working 10 hours a day just chasing your tail to be able to feed yourself and your family, you know, who's not going to be anxious living in a climate where you're constantly competing against each other and you're kind of fearing for the future in a daily basis, you know, whereas job insecurity and whatever, you know. So there's like huge, huge, huge impact from society, a huge impact from culture in the way that we feel mentally, you know. And biological psychiatry is very good at kind of like just invisibilizing all of these factors and telling people, you know, individualizing disease and saying, well, no, you're depressed because your brain is not working properly. You're anxious because, you know, um so yeah. you know and the psychedelics have that value that is a very important thing which actually allow people to see wait it's not only my brain it's not only my certain levels It's the way that i am embedded within this particular dynamic you know it's a job that is not fulfilling me is you know i mean there's so many different things that kind of play out in how we feel about ourselves
0: right because there's there's things in life they're going to happen they're going to suck mm. and then you just deal with those things mm. when they come but we live in this world of this built-up uh, artificial sort of anxiety at every level because we never know what might happen. Or I, I, I remember I was listening to this conversation. I forget. Uh, I think it was uh, Dr. Chris Ryan who was saying this. He was he was talking about uh, this experiment called the learned helplessness experiment. Mm-hmm. And he said that you know that the people living in indigenous you know tribal communities, you know, yes, there's real danger in the world in those in those environments. I mean, you know, you could run across a snake or yeah. you could get poisoned or, or something like that but it was it was you knew your world you knew what to expect and therefore you just kind of dealt with it yeah. because it's you're just dealing with the circumstances it's not this fear run rampant anxiety run rampant yeah it's just okay that's there but then he was talking about this learned helplessness experiment where the dogs, they, would put, they put two dogs in, uh, on electrified floors, mm-hmm. right? And the, the one dog was electrified every time the bell rang, he would get a shock. And then the other dog, it was not correlated to anything. It was just chaos. So it was just shocking and bell ringing at any given time. It was all random. And it, you know, the, the, the dog who was getting shocked routinely on schedule while still getting shocked sucks was far better than the dog who, I mean, the dog who was getting shocked and, 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 you know, when the bell was ringing at random. Yeah. Um, And I kind of forgot where I was going with this point, but it just, it, you brought up the job insecurity and all these sorts of things and I think yeah, so it's like okay, well we have this okay. There's something wrong with you. Here we're gonna isolate this compound. We're gonna we're gonna take the the active component of of ayahuasca and we're gonna put it in a pill and we're gonna give it to you. And and it, we've eliminated the psychoactive properties of it. But here's the thing, and mm-hmm. it's like, what? Like yeah. that doesn't work, right? No,
1: I mean this is a phylasio. Sorry for the no, no, kind of, of
0: muddled, confused way of getting to that
1: but yeah, yeah. but i think this is like the most important or the, like the primary fallacy of you know like uh you know like current approaches to mental health like they they exclusively or almost exclusively now this is there's obviously like more progressive things happening in different parts of the world that have they take much more into account like community mental health projects and so on but you know as a rule um like treatments address the individual you know but they never address like the systemic causes mm. that are causing that individual to be ill you know, they're not addressing, like, the political climate. They're not in addressing, like, you know, the source sort of different things. Um, well, I think psychedelics do both. I mean, they both, you know, some of them have been shown to actually have, like, an immediate effect on reducing, you know, like, anxiety levels in a physical level and different things. But also, like, they just wake up the individual to see, like, a much wider picture of where how, where and how he's embedded within that particular, you know, dynamic and what's actually happening. You know, they, I think, like... the. It's not symptomatic. Like, psychedelics won't necessarily just make you feel better, like a patch, you know. They will, uh, many times, they will kind of, like, force you to dig deep, to really uncover, to really uncover and kind of, like, uh, uproot, like, the sources of that anxiety, of that depression, in a sense. Uh, They will force you to do work, you know. They will force you to kind of, like, actually, like, want to, you know, engage in that very arduous, courageous healing process. It's not, again, it's not a magic pill, but it's much better than just patching things up, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, man, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, I think we covered a a lot of ground. There's always more, right? I feel like I'm going to listen to this later and I'm going to be like, damn, I should have asked this or (laughs) we should have talked about this. Is there anything maybe coming up for you that you think that that you want to say or get across before we wrap up? Um, any final thoughts closing arguments uh suspicious opinions
1: no i think we i mean we did a good job of just unraveling like a bunch of really interesting themes and kind like, of connecting the dots and yeah it's been a pleasure uh talking to you appreciate um you know first and foremost your presence here and your friendship and you know like these um uh, exchanges are always uh fruitful and rich and stimulating
0: yeah, I mean, we, we solved all the world's problems. <laughs> it's over, it's finished. We could put it in the filing cabinet of done. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. No, yeah, I mean, this has been, it's been great. And I, I love engaging in conversations like this. And I think it, it gets back to that theme of like, sort of basking in this mystery, right? And mm-hmm. just engaging in these sorts of things. So is there anything that you want to share with people? Like, uh, you know, if, maybe some place to go to read some of your interviews or... Anything like
1: that? Well, I mean, there's a f- couple of articles, a few articles that I have put through different outlets. There's um, probably like three or four academic articles and book chapters are out in print. Um, you know, I can maybe just like connect the links, you know, whenever you post this in social media or something. And okay. if people are interested, you can just follow the different links.
0: Or if you like looking at street photography.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my Instagram account is yeah, yeah my art well, kind of like an attempt to make art, but <laughs> yeah, it's important.
0: It is very, very important.
1: Yeah.
0: Cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I got like the jungle heat is like taking effect right now. Yeah, I know. It's really heavy it's today. It's raining on us. I think we did a tremendous job, though, considering the, the conditions for this this environment.
1: Well, and we haven't really slept. You know, I haven't or? really slept yet. Yeah, we <laughs> were both
0: in ceremonies last night. I drank uh, a lot of ayahuasca brew and... Uh, <laughs> brew i don't know why i call it brew <laughs> yeah but thank you everyone for listening uh i love each and every single one of you uh, tremendously and i love you too adam
1: yeah likewise uh,
0: yeah gonna miss this place but it'll i'll be back and um what else do i want to say i don't know i think that's it thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you for listening i hope you guys enjoyed that podcast as much as i did you know what to do if you love this show Share it, like it, spread it with your friends. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker. And uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/MikeBrank. You can donate as little as a dollar a month, or you can go on iTunes and leave me a nice five-star rating and review. Whatever you do, thank you for listening. Much love to you all. Peace.